0: you can use the dr joe show on cjad 800 there's antimony arsenic aluminum selenium and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel neodymium neptunium germanium and iron americium ruthenium uranium europium zirconium lutetium vanadium and lanthanum and osmium and astatine and radium and gold protectinium and indium and gallium and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium
1: well welcome aboard
0: and niobium iridium and silicon and silver and samarium today we're going to learn about why a barber's pole has a red stripe we'll find out something about shellac you're going to discover some secrets about bees but first as usual my questions let me start out with two of them what toxic substance causes cat dancing disease what toxic substance causes cat dancing disease next what was advertised as the fiber that won the war if you have the answer to those give us a call 514-790-0800 and of course you can also call us with any other question that you have or text your questions and comments and answers to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where our mandate is to separate sense from nonsense, myth from fact. And uh, one of our efforts is to discuss things with you here on Sunday afternoon, and uh, alert you to some interesting facets of, of science, what is going on in the scientific world and to also exercise your mind with some of my hopefully intriguing questions such as what toxic substance causes cat dancing disease and what was advertised as the fiber that won the war. But first, let's talk about bees. Fascinating little creatures that they are. Well, We're gonna go back a long time to 1792 and a blind Swiss entomologist. Entomologists, of course, are the scientists who study insects. Francois Hubert was blind. Uh, He lost his vision around the age of 15, but that did not prevent him from studying honeybees and publishing his pioneering results in 1792. Now, obviously, he needed some help. And that came from his wife Marie and his faithful servant, François Brunin. They would become his eyes. Now, Hubert was familiar with the scenario that often plays out when someone is stung by a bee. Somehow, the stinging summons other bees to attack a perceived enemy. And if any of you have ever been stung by a bee, you may have noticed this that once you're stung, other bees also come and attempt to gang up. How were these other bees attracted, Hubert wondered? How did they get the message that there was a potential threat to the colony? Well, he knew that when a bee stings, its proboscis gets embedded in the skin, and it is torn from the bee's body with any attempt to retract it. Unfortunately, that results in the death. Of that chivalrous insect. Does gallant self sacrifice somehow send out a signal that alerts other bees to danger? Well, Hubert instructed his assistant to excise stingers from bees and place them near a hive. Sure enough, a bunch of bees emerged and swarmed around the stingers. The likely explanation, according to Huber, was that the excised stingers released some sort of odor that was sensed by the other bees. Now, back then, of course, in the late 1700s, there was no way to determine what specific chemical may be responsible for raising the alarm. That identification would have to wait until 1962, when researchers at Canada's Department of Agriculture noted that the stingers left behind by bees had a sweet scent reminiscent of the odor of bananas. Well, that was intriguing enough to uh, prompt a follow-up experiment. So what the researchers did was they extracted stingers from bees, they macerated them, and uh, they subjected them to uh, analysis in in the laboratory. And uh, using an instrument known as a gas chromatograph, they were able to determine that there were a number of chemicals present in the stinger of a bee, but one of these was dominant. Eventually, it turned out that that chemical was something that we now call isoamyl acetate. Now, interestingly enough, isoamyl acetate is found in the fragrance of bananas, a naturally occurring one, But it was also known to have a banana odor before it was ever discovered in real bananas. That's pretty interesting. Uh, How did this happen? By the mid 1800s, chemists had identified various families of molecules and they learned how to make use of chemical reactions to synthesize new molecules. For example, when alcohols were reacted with molecules called carboxylic acids, they formed esters which often had fruity aromas. They introduced the idea of making artificial flavors for candies, beverages, and ice cream by reacting alcohols with carboxylic acids. Well, one of these alcohols, isoamyl alcohol, when reacted with uh, acetic acid, produced the smell of bananas. And this was isoamyl acetate. Today, that compound is used to Produce banana flavoring in uh, various candies, cakes, cookies, etc. But when it is used, it has to be labeled as an artificial flavor because it's made in the lab. Nevertheless, it is identical to what is found in bananas. But curiously, on a label, it has to be called artificial because it isn't exactly isolated from bananas, although it is exactly the same uh, thing. Uh, now, this uh, isoamyl acetate is what triggers aggressive behavior in uh, in honeybees. When a stinger is embedded in the skin and attempt is made to withdraw it, uh, that attempt releases isoamyl acetate from the body of of the bee. That then wafts into the air, and other uh, bees, of course, are alerted, and they come and they uh, attempt to sting because They think that there's an invader uh, who is uh, uh, threatening them. Well, in the future, we may be having to rely more and more on using synthetic isoamyl acetate for banana flavoring. And the reason for that is that the Cavendish banana, which is the one that is commonly sold in North America, is actually threatened by a disease. It's called Panama disease. It's really a fungal infection, and uh, there already are some plantations that have been decimated by this fungus. There's right now, there's just no answer to this. There, there's no antifungal substance that that is effective against that particular uh, fungus. So, we may once again have to listen to a song that was extremely popular in 1923. The song was called Yes, We Have No Bananas, and it was inspired by Panama disease that at the time was wiping out the Gros Michel banana, which was the one that was sold before the Cavendish was introduced. <laughs> All right, we are back. As I was telling you before the break, uh, you're going to be treated to a song from the 1920s. It was a huge hit. Uh, It was a novelty song written by Frank Silver and set to music by uh, Irving Cohn. And it was inspired by the fact that bananas at that time uh, were being affected by an infection by a fungus, and uh, nobody had them, and uh, grocers had to say, "We have no bananas," and that inspired this song. All right, here we go. It is. The- oh yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. We got string beans and onions and big juicy lemons and all kinds of fruit and say we've got an old fashioned tomato, a Long Island potato. Oh yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. Okay, I think you get the gist of it. It was a nice little ditty. And uh, it has this scientific connection. And as I said, we may be listening to this again because the Cavendish banana, which is so popular now, and it's the one that is sold in North America, is also being decimated by a fungus. Well, hopefully uh, agronomes will find some sort of solution to that problem, so we won't have to be singing this song uh, except for our entertainment the version that you heard was by louis prima but many others have recorded uh, that song as well and just to finish up our little bee story as i told you researchers were able to isolate isoamyl acetate as the alarm pheromone of the honeybee this is what alerts other bees to to attack so there's a little moral to that story and that is You don't want to be eating bananas or anything banana-flavored around a beehive because you may have a rather undesirable uh, experience. So as far as the questions that I posed, I do have an answer uh, to the, or at least an attempt at the answer about what toxic substance causes cat dancing disease. Uh, That attempt was catnip, which is not correct. Uh, catnip does not cause cat dancing disease. And furthermore, catnip is not toxic to to, to cats. Otherwise, of course, they wouldn't go for it. Uh, my other question, though, was correctly answered. And that was what was advertised as the fiber that won the war. And that, of course, was nylon. In World War II, the properties of nylon were invaluable for ropes and parachutes, otherwise made of silk. And silk was uh, unavailable at the time because uh, silk, of course, grew mostly in the Orient, uh, or it was harvested from from, uh, the silkworms in the Orient, and the U.S. was cut off by the Japanese from their silk supplies. And uh, American servicemen also wanted nylon stockings to barter with when overseas. And uh, the problem was uh, how to have enough uh, of this material it was originally synthesized by wallace at the dupont company and uh, by 1939 uh, it was being made in large enough volume for uh, the war effort and uh, because uh, nylon could be recycled ladies who had purchased their nylon stockings starting uh, you know, in the late uh, 1930s actually most of it was sold in in on so-called Nylon Day, 1940. And after that, ladies were urged to give up their uh, nylon stockings so that they could be recycled into parachutes and other uh, paraphernalia. And uh, this is why it has been called the fiber that won the war. Uh, After the war, parachutes were cut up to make women's underwear, and production of clothing uh, resumed. So yes, that was the correct answer. All right. Uh, let me uh, give you another question to replace that one. What is the world's most popular fruit? What is the world's most popular fruit? If you know the answer to that, 514 790 You can text your comments and questions to 514-800. Now, I was going to tell you about the barber's pole. We still see these around with their characteristic red stripe. Well, that red stripe represents the color of blood. During the Middle Ages, monks were required to shave the crown of their head, a function commonly performed by itinerant barbers. Also, under ecclesiastic law, monks had to be periodically bled. This was supposedly a symbol of piousness, of devotion to God. Barbers began to attend to this duty as well. They would travel with a flag of a white cloth dipped in blood to indicate that they would attend to anyone who needed to be bled. This early mode of advertisement eventually was transformed into the barber's pole. And the pole began to symbolize more than haircuts and bleeding. Barbers began to expand their role and became quasi-surgeons, specializing in sewing up wounds and extracting teeth. They also dabbled in the whitening of teeth by dabbing them with nitric acid. This did produce immediate whitening, but destroyed the teeth in the long run by wearing away the protective enamel. But at least one 16th century barber surgeon, Ambroise Paré, made an important contribution to medicine. Barbers in those days worked under the guidance of physicians. Who Uh, thought themselves above menial jobs, like cutting and scalding. Why scalding? Because physicians thought that gunpowder was poisonous, and therefore gunshot wounds had to be treated with boiling oil to destroy the poison. Unfortunately, if the bullet didn't kill the victim, the scalding often did. During the siege of Turin in 1537, Paré ran out of oil and for some reason substituted a cold mixture of egg yolks, Oil of roses and turpentine, to his surprise, the soldiers treated with this mixture fared better than those who had been scalded, and thus ended the brutal practice of pouring hot oil into bullet wounds. The French trained pare was a religious sort and thought he had help in making his observation. That's why he introduced the oft-repeated phrase, I dressed the wound, but God healed him." So now you have uh, an idea of the origin of the barber's pole. These days, of course, uh, barbers don't bleed us. Um, In fact, there are not many barbers around who actually shave uh, people, although there still are hairdressing establishments that will signal their presence with the traditional barber's pole, with the... Uh, twirling red that symbolizes blood. Mm. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? When the a problem should perplex you, does not put your brain in gear? We have Dario on the line. Dario. Hello? Hi, go ahead. Yeah, so I was uh, talking because uh, you mentioned which uh, fruit is the most popular. Uh, yes. Growing up uh, Italian, I'm Italian, so I I hope it's the right answer. I'd say the tomato. Yes, you're absolutely right. The tomato is, I think, uh, quite by far the most popular fruit uh, in the world. You know what I don't is second? Know which... yeah. You know what is second? What is second? Yeah. I would guess the orange. No, it's the banana. Oh, it's the okay. banana. Yeah, tomato number one, banana number two, and there actually are more songs about bananas than about any other fruit. And of course, we just heard uh, one of the most famous ones uh, before. So you're quite right. Yeah, tomato. And you're Italian, so you know all about that, right? Yeah. I don't know which country consumes the most tomatoes, but I know Italians are up there. Oh, I, I would I would think that on a per capita basis, Italians eat more tomatoes than anyone else. Maybe we can see. Maybe I can Google that and see if we can confirm that. But I think that okay. that is correct. Okay, Dario, Mar- okay, Thanks very much. Thank you. All right, now... Now that we've had an answer to to that question, I should uh, replace it with another one. Let's take to bananas. Why did Britain ban banana imports in 1940? So 1940, Britain banned all banana imports. Why did they do that? And I did have a correct answer to my question about cat dancing disease, about what toxic substance causes it. It is methylmercury. And this is a an often told story and a scary story whenever we're talking toxicology. It <clears throat> takes us back to May 1st, 1956, when a doctor in Japan reported an epidemic of an unknown disease of the central nervous system. And that marked the official discovery of what has come to be called Minamata disease. In the late 1950s, Minamata Bay, that's in Japan, of course, became contaminated with mercury from a nearby uh, manufacturing plant where they were making acetaldehyde. Now, acetaldehyde is is a very common chemical. It's mass-produced today as well. Uh, One of the uses is in urea acetaldehyde resins. And uh, it's also used to make acetic acid, uh, which was used to make polyvinyl acetate. So it was a, a, a chemical that was produced on a large scale. Well, they thought that the mercury that was being used in this uh, process, when it was uh, dispensed with, they thought it would just sink to the bottom of the ocean and stay there. But it turned out that the mercury was actually biotransformed by bacteria in the water into methyl mercury, And that bioaccumulated and biomagnified in the fish. Well, first, local cats that ate the fish began to stagger about and die hence cat-dancing disease. And then the local population of people that depended on fish were affected, particularly developing fetuses and children. Over 2,000 people died and thousands more experienced crippling injuries. So that's when we really learned that solution to pollution is not dilution. Mercury dumped into the bay, uh, did not disappear, and it returned with tragic consequences. We also learned from this episode that placenta is not a barrier to environmental contaminants and that the fetus is very sensitive to mercury. Unfortunately, we learned these lessons again during the 1970s in Iraq when people consumed seed grain that had been treated with a mercury-based fungicide and uh, there was a massive poisoning in that um, case as well. So that is all about uh, Minamata disease, and it is due to poisoning by mercury, more specifically, a compound of mercury, which is methyl mercury. I also told you that I was going to talk to you a little bit today about shellac. <clears throat> In the late 1940s, long playing records made of polyvinyl chloride made their debut. But there were records before that so what material did polyvinyl chloride replace in the making of records that material was shellac well you mentioned shellac and immediately you conjure up images of shiny wood furniture but uh, this resinous secretion of the female lassifer lacca beetle because that's exactly what this is it's a secretion of an animal secretion of a beetle it has a number of other uses and uh, it became commercially available in the 1800s why because shellac can be scraped off branches where it has been deposited by these beetles and then it can be molded under heat and pressure into virtually any shape it was used to make jewelry Uh, it was made into the boxes to hold that jewelry combs even early dentures People fitted with these devices probably had no idea of the origin of the material. The Lassifer beetles are native to Southeast Asia, but it's only the female that is useful, at least in terms of providing shellac. I think the females would think that the males also have a use. I guess, though, there would be no females without males, so they do serve a purpose. The female does not have a very exciting life, spending all of it attached to a tree. She sucks sap from the bark, converts it to a resin, which she uses to glue herself to the tree. This is where the male finds her, performs his reproductive duties, and leaves the female encased in what becomes her resinous tomb. Indian peasants discovered that the resinous material could be scraped from trees, melted, filtered from insect parts, and used to provide a lustrous preservative coating to wood. The production of shellac was not easy, a single pound being the result of some 15,000 lac beetles toiling away for six months. As long as shellac was used as a wood coating, the demand could be met. After all, labor in India was cheap. But with the advent of the age of electricity, demand increased sharply, because shellac turned out to be the best electrical insulator available. And demand rose even further when shellac proved to be better than hard rubber for making phonograph records. It wasn't ideal, however, given that it was fragile, and the amount of music that could be recorded on a side was quite limited. But then along came polyvinyl chloride, and in 1948, Columbia Records introduced the first long-playing PVC record, developed by Peter Goldmark, and shellac was shunted aside at least as far as the record industry was concerned. Today, shellac is still sometimes used as a wood preservative and in the food industry, too. Since it is perfectly edible, it is used as a coating on candies and it is sprayed onto fruits to provide a thin coating to prevent moisture loss. It is not labeled as shellac on candies, uh, I guess because that would be somewhat frightening to some uh, some people. So it is usually labeled as a natural additive, a natural uh, ingredient, which of course it is, because it is made by bugs that are perfectly natural. <laughs> now, just because shellac can be used as uh, coating on furniture doesn't mean that it is unsafe as a food. This is not a question of some candy maker deciding gee you know I want my candies to have a nice little shine so we will coat them with uh, with shellac the only way to make that happen is to furnish studies about the safety of the material and that was done long ago so both Health Canada and the FDA in the US uh, have agreed that there's no harm in humans consuming uh, shellac in the amounts that are used as coating on fruits or on, uh, as coating on, on candies. So you don't have to worry about uh, consuming the shellac on the candy. The bigger worry would be the candy itself. Uh, the sugar content of, uh, of the candy is a greater concern than the shellac that is used to coat it. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. We still have a question uh, hanging uh, over from last week. It was never answered what is bikini medicine what is bikini medicine no these are not doctors who treat tears and bikinis so the question is what is bikini medicine and also i'm still looking for the answer to why britain banned banana imports in 1940 all bananas were banned from uh, england in 1940 the question is why I've, I've spoken before about Seinfeld because I just, I love that show. Uh, I think every episode is, uh, is funny. Uh, it is brilliantly written. But one of my favorite episodes is The Bro. Uh, that's when uh, uh, discovering that George's father, Frank, has man boobs, Kramer concocts a male version of a bra that he calls The Bro. Well, Frank, who prefers the name Manzier, tries it on just as his wife Estelle and George makes an appearance. Estelle's expression, she explains, oh, my God, is just priceless. It makes for just a hilarious scene. I mean, I've seen that episode many times. I can't help laughing every time I watch that scene. However, gynecomastia, which is the proper term for breast enlargement in men, is not funny and can cause embarrassment and grief. It occurs when the balance of male hormone, testosterone, and the female hormone, um, estrogen, is disturbed. Yes, males also produce estrogen. It is produced from testosterone with the aid of aromatase, an enzyme, it's found in the adrenal glands, in the brain, the testes, and in fatty tissue. A change in the relative amount of circulating testosterone and estrogen can have many causes. The onset of puberty, as well as of old age, can trigger changes. Testicular tumors, and overproduction of thyroxin by the thyroid gland, medications such as uh, finasteride, that's Proscar or Propecia, or amphetamines like Adderall can all play a role in disturbing the balance of testosterone and estrogen. Anabolic steroids, compounds that behave like testosterone, can also have an effect as the body tries to counter the increase in male hormones by producing more estrogen. Bodybuilders who abuse steroids are destined to learn about gynecomastia firsthand. So what can be done? There are surgical options such as liposuction as well as uh, prescription aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen that can produce circulating estrogen some marketers of natural remedies have gotten into the game one product solipac is advertised as gynecomastia tightening ginger cream and entices customers with seductive anecdotes and before and after pictures since there are no human trials published in scientific literature none that i could find anyway we are left to take the marketers word for the authenticity of the photos i'm skeptical. The possibility of a ginger-based cream having some effect cannot be dismissed out of hand, since uh, animal studies have shown that ginger can boost testosterone. But that was in diabetic rats. This research was not aimed at gynecomastia, a condition not seen in rats. Rather, the goal was to see if ginger, or compounds found in ginger, may play a role in treating low testosterone levels. That's a potentially useful effect, since insufficient levels of testosterone in men are linked with infertility, loss of libido, diabetes, and osteoporosis. While pharmaceutical testosterone can be prescribed, natural treatments seem more attractive to consumers. And the diet supplement industry is keen to capitalize on that belief. Hence the RAT studies. They are interesting because ginger root has shown evidence for increasing testosterone, as well as for countering the effects of some reproductive toxins, such as lead or aluminum chloride. Surprisingly, zingerone, geraniol, or six-gingerol, the main bioactive components of ginger root, have shown no such effect when individually tested. And no study has demonstrated any reduction of breast size in men, either by consuming ginger or by scoffing dietary supplements containing various ginger extracts. Neither is there any study demonstrating the benefits of rubbing ginger cream on the chest, a la Solipac. So it is a case of buyer beware. At this point, any claim about ginger treating gynecomastia is highly suspect. But there's some evidence that ginger can treat nausea as brought on by pregnancy, motion sickness, or chemotherapy. Perhaps it may also be able to treat the nausea triggered by unsubstantiated claims like this one by Solipak. Listen to this. Ginger works for gynecomastia, known to stabilize the body's immune system and triggers the production of testosterone and androgen. Lowers estrogen production, dilutes the effect of the same. It can burn fats in your chest area and turn into muscle. Well, ginger doesn't burn fats, hasn't been proven to work for gynecomastia. And sometimes, just a word or phrase can be a giveaway of untrustworthiness. Testosterone and androgen is an example. Androgen is not a compound. Androgens are male sex hormones of which testosterone is one. Anyway. As far as Kramer's Manseer is concerned, so far it only exists in the classic Seinfeld episode. (laughs) That episode is called The Doorman, in case you want to uh, look at it. And uh, it remains for some ingenious vendor to gingerly introduce the bro into the marketplace. I'll I'll alert you to another uh, scam that I've come across. And uh, this one uh, is one of the most outrageous ones that I've I've discovered. You know, I, I I look at all kinds of videos that tout dietary supplements and and treatments of all kinds. Uh, many many scams out there, but this one is uh, is an absolutely outrageous one. And uh, I've written about it. Uh, it's on our website, which is mcgill.oss. Uh you can look it up there or you can go to my Facebook page. I've put it on there as well to find my Facebook page. Of course, you can just go to Facebook and put in Joe Schwartz and, and uh, mine will come up. Uh, anytime that someone claims that there's a cure for every known disease, you know that you're looking at a scam. Now, in this particular case, the claim is about eye diseases and this product which is being promoted in this video uh, is set to cure everything from macular degeneration to to short-sightedness or uh, every possible vision problem cataracts glaucoma uh, all by taking a pill this is is very very scary because this kind of uh, a video it's very very thickly produced. And the spokesperson there calls himself an eye care specialist, whatever that may mean. Uh, I can't even find this person with a Google search. His name is David Lewis, uh, but doesn't come up with any kind of of search. So I don't even know if he's a real person or if he's an an actor. But the promise is to cure every possible uh, disease with this uh, supplement that's a mixture of astaxanthin, quercetin, uh, Zeaxanthin, lutein, vitamins, minerals, lysine, eye uh, bright, bilberry extract. Uh, I mean, it's it's really a kitchen sink of all kinds of uh, ingredients. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, some of these have been researched and looked at in terms of uh, of eye disease. But uh, uh, to claim that this particular mix cures every eye problem. Uh, is absolutely criminal anyway you can read my comments about this if you go to our our website uh, which is uh, mcgill uh, oss and uh, you can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter by going there or check out my facebook page where i've also posted this article well that is it for today And as I promised, you learned about barber poles, you learned about shellac, you learned something about bees. We even had an answer to some of my questions. And that is it for this week. But rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.